In essence, the letter to the Ephesians is full of Christian good news, which flows out to anyone who has read it. This book has moved many to wonder and worship. It was John Calvin's favourite letter, and many have come to faith and been stirred to do good works by the words written in these six chapters. In the opening verses, we read about the new life that God has given us in Christ. It is divided into two halves, the first being praise and the second being prayer. In the praise half, Paul blesses God that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. While in the prayer half, he asks that God will open our eyes to grasp the fullness of this blessing. This morning, we will look at Paul's expression of praise. After Paul's greeting, the next 12 verses comprise of a single sentence. You can imagine Paul dictating this with passion and gusto, never pausing for breath, nor allowing the scribe the luxury of a full stop. He begins by blessing God for blessing us with every conceivable blessing, where he deliberately refers to the Trinity. Look at verse 3, where he says the origin of the blessings is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have the Father of our and the Son. And it's in the heavenly realms that every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing can be translated as every blessing of the Holy Spirit. So God has not only blessed us, he chose us and predestined us to be his sons and daughters. He freely gave us his grace, making known to us his will and purpose which he set forth in Christ, to unite all things. This whole paragraph is full of God the Father, who has set his love and poured his grace upon us, and who is working out his eternal plan. Second, the field with which this divine blessing is given and received is through Jesus Christ. In fact, in the first 14 verses, Jesus or Christ or he, him or the beloved is mentioned 15 times, whereas the phrase in Christ, in him, occurs 11 times. As for Christians, he uses the term saints and believers who are in Christ Jesus. Formerly, we were in Adam, referring to the old fallen nature, but now we are in Christ belonging to the new saved humanity. Once we were separated from Christ, and therefore hopeless and godless. But now in Christ, now we have been overwhelmed with blessing. Thirdly, there is the Holy Spirit. While he is mentioned only in verse 13 and 14, his action is assumed throughout and will carried out later in chapters. So what Paul is stressing here is that the blessing God gives us in Christ is spiritual. Paul uses the term in heavenly places or heavenlies, depicting no geographical location. Only in Ephesians does he use this term and does so five times. But what does it mean? Now the word heaven in scripture is used in several different senses. Ancient authors used to differentiate between the heaven of nature, the sky, the heaven of grace, eternal life, already received and enjoyed by God's people on earth, and the heaven of glory, 
you could say, our final resting place. But the heavenlies is to be understood differently from all of these. It is neither sky nor grace, nor glory or any other final resting place, but rather where the principalities and powers continue to operate, where Christ reigns supreme and where his people reign with him, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God has done his bit. We need to do ours. We are to grow in maturity in Christ. We are to seek to become more like Jesus in loving, accepting, forgiving, and chiseling out those rough edges that we possess. So what are these blessings which God has blessed us with in Christ? They relate to the past, where the world was created, the present being what we have now, and the future, or put differently, in the fullness of time. John Stott refers to them as election, adoption, and unification. So this past is about before creation, before time began, when only God himself existed. Here, God formed a purpose in his mind where Christ, his only begotten Son, and us, who he has made us adopted sons and daughters, were put together. It gets a bit complicated here, for God decided to make us, who did not yet exist, his own children through the redeeming work of Christ, which had not yet taken place. But you might say to me, didn't I choose to follow God? And the answer is, yes, you did. However, God first chose you. Others might say, didn't I decide to follow Jesus? And the answer again is yes. But in eternity, God had first decided for you. Now, this doctrine of election was not invented by theologians. Now, it's a biblical doctrine. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his special people. Where in the New Testament, he is choosing an international community to be his saints, his holy or special people. Calvin is known as the father of predestination, and to be honest, Calvinists are often more Calvin than Calvin was himself. But in May 1558, when he preached through Ephesians in 48 sermons, he said, Although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it to us, and experience itself vouches for it sufficiently. When we are enlightened in the faith. Sadly, some have taken this doctrine as though, although already chosen by God, that means there is no need for holiness and can behave as they please. But Paul in verse 4 reminds us that we should be holy and blameless before God. It is in holiness and with Christ-likeness that we are to live our lives. The second part is the blessing of adoption. God destined us in love to be his sons and daughters. Think about that for a moment. 
Only if we have accepted Jesus as our Saviour can we say, as in verse 7 to 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have been redeemed and forgiven because Jesus paid the price of our sin when he died for our sins on the cross. That means redemption, forgiveness, and adoption all go together. It is something we have now, but it comes with responsibility too. In fact, God disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. We are destined to be his sons and daughters and chose us so that we should be holy. God has done more than choose. He has also made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will for the future. It concerns his purpose, which he started with Jesus as a plan until the fullness of time. This plan will be seen later in chapter 3. But we already know what it is as we are part of it. You see, it is the inclusion of Gentiles in God's new society. We are now on equal terms with the Jews. God's plan for the fullness of time is when time merges into eternity again, when things in heaven things on earth are united. Currently, the world faces discord, but in the fullness of time, discord will cease, and that unity which we long for will come into being through Jesus. It's so easy to be caught up in our own situation and concerned about ourselves and family, but consider where Paul was. He was under house arrest in Rome and chained to a soldier. We need to consider that Paul, in this dark situation and close to his last days on earth, saw things in the light of eternity. And if we did place ourselves like Paul, then we would share his praise. Stott is recorded as saying, Sorry, Mike, can you just stop it and go back a fraction? Right, okay, that's fine. Scott has recorded this. Right. So I'll go back to Scott has recorded this saying. Scott has, Scott has recorded this saying, for doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship, and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. Having shared with us the spiritual blessings God gives to his people in Christ, Paul commences a new paragraph in verses 11 to 14. Here he includes Gentiles alongside the Jews. Initially, just for the Jews, these blessings are now open to everyone else. Something we will see much more in chapter 2, for in him, in Jesus, he is the reconciler of that the people of God are one. In the closing part of this praise, we are taken to three facts. Firstly, that God's people are God's possession. Just as Israel was in God's, was God's in the Old Testament. We read that all who are now in Christ, which includes Gentiles as well as Jews. God's people are God's saints. And God's heritage 
Only when we understand that can we ask two questions. First, how did we become God's people? And secondly, why did he make us his people? Paul answers the first question by reference to God's will, and the second by reference to his glory. It is something he says three times. You see, God's people depend on God's will. But how do we become God's people or possession? Paul emphatically says, it is by the will of God. He destined us to be sons and daughters according to the will of God. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And we have become God's heritage according to the purpose of him who accomplished all things according to the counsel of his will. In fact, the whole passage is full of references to God's will, good pleasure, or purpose. The assurance that God is still active in the lives of his people is seen through the Holy Spirit, when verses 13 to 14 is given in three names, a promise, a seal, and a guarantee. Firstly, is literally the spirit of the promise, because God promised through the Old Testament prophets and through Jesus to send him, which he did on the day of Pentecost. And God promises to give him today to everyone who repents and believes. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is not only God's promise, but also God's seal. We understand that a seal is a mark of ownership and validity. Cattle and slaves were branded with a seal by their masters, indicating to whom they were owned. While these seals are external, God's is in the heart, where he puts his spirit within his people to mark them his own. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee by which he embarks on to bring his people safely home. As an engagement ring promises marriage that is not part of the marriage, a deposit on a house is more than a guarantee of payment. It is the first installment of a purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance. No, he is giving us a foretaste of it. Lastly, God's people live for God's glory. We now go from how we became God's people to why God made us his people. Quite simply, it is for the praise of his glory, verse 12. Just as one day he will finally redeem his people who are in his possession to the praise of his glory. Now the glory of God is the revelation of God and the glory of his grace is the self-admission as a gracious God. To live to the praise of the glory of his grace is both to worship him by our words and deeds and to encourage others to do so too. 
This was God's will for Israel in the Old Testament days. And it's his will for his people today. In this passage this morning, we see that everything we have and are in Christ both comes from God and returns to God. It begins with his will and ends with his glory. For this is where everything begins and ends. So as God's people, God's possession, may we live by God's will and for God's glory. Amen.